Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. The first question of today is a novel. It is quite literally a book. Um, this person emailed me asking for some advice, and they gave me kind of their whole rundown. So I'm going to summarize basically what they said because I'm not going to describe to you guys their training, their nutrition, when they eat, what their macros are, all those things. I'm just going to kind of give you the basic concept because I think it's the concept and, and the idea behind what they're asking that I think is going to apply to everybody else. Um, so they typically eat four times a day, but they've been trying to eat five times a day, but they feel like they're having to keep their meals too close together. So basically they're trying to scrunch five meals into their day when four meals seems to be a little bit better. They train early in the morning. They do a CrossFit style of training. So they are training pretty intensely. Um, and the basis of the questions is would four meals be okay with such a high fat amount coming all at once? Or is it better to try to keep it at five meals a day and spread it out more evenly? Uh, they are looking to keep their body fat percentage on the leaner side. They are currently 16% as a female and will like to stay within 14 to 16%. Granted, take that with a grain of salt, not face value, because as we know, most body fat scanners are completely inaccurate. Um, I will link uh, in the show notes a uh, blog that I wrote reviewing all the different body fat scanners. Like I literally went through everything. So uh, an example of this is I even did a DEXA. Uh, which is one of the most accurate body fat scanners that you can do. Um, MRI, I think, is actually even more accurate, but who can literally do an MRI? Now, even DEXs are pretty expensive. Um, you're spending anywhere between $100 to $250 every time you visit. So to ideally do those very often is pretty unrealistic unless you're somebody like uh, my good friend, actually my nutrition coach, Chris Barricat. Shout out to Chris. Um, he works in a lab. So like for him, it's free right? Totally different. So more, more power to people that have access to that for free or very easy access to it. But for most people, that's, that's not possible. Now I went there right after my surgery because I wanted to see, so basically we're going to do it again here soon because I've gone through about six months of recomping and I want to see what the difference is, but I tracked everything I did. Now this is a side tangent, but it applies. Um, I always like to do rants if it applies and, and gives you guys some value or some kind of lesson, but essentially I tracked everything I ate the night before. I tracked my hours of sleep. I tracked uh, how much water I drank prior to going. Ideally, you'd go completely fasted, but I couldn't because it was in the middle of the day. So I tracked everything I did to make sure that I can replicate it. So I went in there and I was 13% body fat. Um, and it was actually pretty crazy because I could see massive differences on my left leg compared to my right. Um, but that's higher than I usually sit body fat percentage wise. So obviously, I, my goal is to get leaner and rebuild that muscle I lost, um, which I Definitely did, but I want to go and get the actual numbers here soon. But long story short, I did the DEXA, got my as close to accurate as I possibly can get, that 13%. Now, granted, that could be 
It could have been 12%. It could have been 16%. I think their margin of error is actually pretty big. And like I said, I'm going to link that body fat scanner blog in my in the show notes of this. And I go through that uh, bod pod. Um, I go through 3D fit scanner. I go through the in body. I go through all the different ones. Now, all the other ones are pretty similar. They use that uh, bioelectrical uh signal essentially that they send through your body. I believe it's a bioelectric signal, but basically it's an electric signal they send through your body and it, depending on how long it takes to get from one limb to the next, so one hand to the next hand or whatever it may be, um, depending on how you're attached to the machine, usually you hold them in your hand. Depending on the time frame, that gives them a calculation of, of how much body fat you have. Very inaccurate because water, muscle tissue, stress, carbs, all these different things can play a role in slowing that down or speeding that up, which can completely vary what you see there. But my point with this whole story is simple. I did the DEXA, got 13%. I literally took five steps to the left. They had a 3D fit scanner in there, which uses that same electrical signal, that same like handheld style thing. But on this one, it's more like an in-body where you stand on it. Um, This one spins you around. So you get like a posture analysis too, which was that that part was actually pretty cool. But I did it and it said I was 26%. Or 23.6. Either way, I was well above 20%, which is obviously inaccurate because I'm, I'm fairly lean. Um, and the DEXA just told me I was 13%, which was funny because these people are trying to sell me on this kind of technology. And then I'm like, so why did it give me such a like crazy variance? And they had like no answer. And I explained the science behind it to them, which was funny um, and kind of awkward. But my point with it being is, is take all body fat percentages as a grain of salt. The best way to use these numbers is not literal. So don't get tied down to the number of what body fat percentage you are. Rather, look at it, remember exactly when and how you took that test so you can replicate it and then just try to watch that number go down. Because if you can see a trend going downward, then you are positively improving your lean body mass, your body fat percentage, whatever it may be. But if you're so tied down to the number and you're so worried about being below a certain percentage, that's where it starts to fuck with your head and you create a poor relationship with your body. Um, Anyway, go back to the question. This person is eating four meals per day. They train early in the morning. This is leaving their fourth meal with 45 grams of fat in it, very little carbs and a good amount of protein. This is also meaning that the rest of her meals for the day are very low in fat. She's wondering if she should split her meals up into five meals per day because that way she doesn't have to put so much fat in the evening and it is better spreading out her nutrients throughout the day. So there's a few points I want to touch on on this. So she's asking me, should I, should I stick with four meals a day? Is that okay? Um, even though I have so much fat in the evening or should I spread out my meals more evenly? My, my quick and simple answer to her was, is daily macros matter most? So if you're just a person trying to stay lean, get leaner, improve in performance, you don't want to get into the nitty gritty, anything like that, don't worry about it. Don't overthink it. Just hit your daily macros. That's that. I don't care if you have two meals, three meals, four meals, five meals. I don't care if those change day to day. No matter what, hit your daily macros. We always have to start everything with the foundational principle. What is like the principles? What is the saying? I I say this all the time on the podcast. I can't believe I don't remember this by now. Principles, no, methods are many. Principles are few. So, wait, it goes longer than that too, I think. Methods are many. Principles are few. Principles rarely change methods often do. <laughs> I think that's the, I think that's it. And it, it, even if that's not the exact saying, that makes sense. So basically principles don't really ever change. Calories matter, macros matter, daily intake matters. That's a principle. It's never going to change. It's set in stone. Make sure you abide by that principle by all means. 
once you easily can do so and you want to get into the more advanced stuff, and even when I said her, I said my simple answer is yes, and then I explained that. And then I said my more complex answer, if you are an advanced lifter and looking to get into the science of things, um, this is where methods may change. I told her I probably would opt for five meals a day. I think that in general, recovery, hormonal status of a female and performance is generally going to be better with five meals rather than four meals, um, especially because she wakes up at 4.30 in the morning. So if you're waking up that early and you're awake for that long, I would personally say get more meals in, spread out your uh, meals more evenly, three to four hours apart, um, and then spend eight to 10 hours quote unquote fasting when you're going to bed. Like I think that's perfect. I also don't like 45 grams of fat in one single meal. I think having those other meals with pure carb and very little fat can have a negative uh, negative effect on blood sugar and digestion. For some people, I think you're going to burn through those carbs super quick. I think you're not slowing the digestion down enough. I think you might get a big blood sugar and insulin dump because of it. Um, around training, that's totally fine because you can eat, go right to training, eat again. But then your other meals, you should really evenly spread that out a bit more. Um, I find balance with protein and fats to be pretty helpful with satiety, with blood sugar, with insulin, with digestion. Um, I also think that 45 grams of fat is a lot at night. Now, not everybody has this issue, but some people have gallbladder issues if they do too much fat and they try to break down too much fat in one single meal. Again, that's not everybody, but it's something to consider. Um, I also know that her her combination of fats in that last meal, avocado, olive oil, MCT oils, it's just like to the point where you're just adding a bunch of stuff in there. And I know a lot of people who have done keto who get in a similar position and they get keto shits. And, and really what this is, is you're eating so much different oils that your body just starts, for lack of better terms, blowing it out the other end. Um, so we don't want to wreck digestion. We don't want to create diarrhea. We, we want to keep digestion healthy. We want to keep your gut healthy and, and stress-free. So I personally would spread that out way more evenly. Um, I would have more fats. She had three grams of fats in her pre and post-workout meal. I personally think that depending on how close to your meal that is, like you're, you're right now my breakfast is also my post-workout meal and I eat about 2.5 hours before I train. That doesn't quite make sense because if your breakfast is your post-workout meal but you still eat 2.5 hours before you train, not quite sure what that means but she said ground chicken, veggies, and jasmine rice. Um, I personally would take the veggies out. I would add fats in there. Fats and veggies are going to do one thing very similarly because it's fiber versus fat. They're both going to slow the digestion down of those carbs, which I think is good because if you eat pure carb, you are going to get that blood sugar response, which is good because then we have blood glucose readily available in the training session. However, you're going to burn through it quickly and it's not going to slowly break down and allow you to have sustained energy. So some fats are good. I personally like to keep my fats pre-workout within five to 10 grams. I find that to be a really good balance for most people. So I would probably take the... Uh, veggies out because the difference between fats and veggies, although they both slow the digestion down, veggies are much more voluminous and it's fiber. So we're going to have more gut stress. We're going to have more gut bloat. We're going to have more volume of food actually sitting in our digestive tract, which is not something we want when we're doing heavy squats. So in that scenario, I would probably drop the veggies pre-workout. I would add some form of fat, whether it's butter, oil, nut butter, something or a fattier meat like steak instead of chicken breast or you have egg whites with a whole egg, something like that, coconut oil. Coconut oil is a really good one because it's a multi-chain triglyceride which is known to break down and be utilized as fuel 
far better than any other fat source. That's why coconut oil got so popular. That's why MCT oil got so popular because it's one of the only fats that your liver can break down and digest quickly and use for energy compared to other fats. Um, but all that being said, I would probably have five to 10 grams of fat pre and post workout and then I would spread the rest of your fats out evenly across the meals. I think a lot of people get in this mode of you can't combine macros together. So they think, okay, I have to have carbon protein meals and carbon fat meals. Well, then you run into this position where you're eating 100 grams of carbs in a meal. You get this crazy energy dump, dump, insulin dump. You might not be breaking down all those carbohydrates properly because some people struggle with over 50 to 60 grams. Not everybody, but I find that usually people kind of have a threshold for how much carbs they can tolerate in a single meal. Um, And I find that people usually do better with 40 to 60 grams versus 100 to 150. So why not spread those those carbs out a little bit more evenly, spread the fats out a little bit more evenly. If you're really trying to accomplish the idea of having insulin low for part of the day, you can easily do that with just one meal. So your last meal of the day, for example, would be carb-free. So you'd only have veggies in that meal. You keep carbs really low. It's protein and fat dominant, but it's not 45 grams of, of fat. It's, it's much lower. Like anywhere between 15 to 25 at most. And then the fast, when you are sleeping, you're optimizing insulin anyway. So from the last time you eat carbs to the morning, you're still getting a solid 16 hours of, of low carbs and, and quote unquote insulin sensitivity. But even to add into that, to go even deeper in the science, the, the insulin concept has been debunked. Like people have debunked the fact that you can eat as much sugar as you want as long as it's in your caloric intake and you're probably not going to gain a ton of fat. Is it healthy for you? Probably not. May it indirectly lead to issues with your health that could indirectly lead to fat accumulation in the future? Probably. I don't think there's any studies that go long enough for us to see that because it would take months and years to really accomplish that or negatively accomplish that, I should say. But my point being is the insulin concept, the insulin method has kind of been debunked. Um, James Krieger has a lot of good stuff on this. Um, So I highly suggest his work. I'll link some of that in the show notes. But he kind of debunked us with different studies showing that if calories are controlled, insulin is irrelevant. So for us to try to manage insulin that properly is kind of going into like the whole splitting hair zone. Um, I think if you were insulin resistant, then we need to worry about it. But if you're a lean individual who's performing hard, if you're between 14 to 16% body fat, like you say, I think I don't think you have any need to worry about that. So long story short, macros matter most. Uh, but in the case that you are telling me you are lean, you are advanced, you are training hard first thing in the morning, and you're having 45 grams of fat in one single meal at night because you're trying to spread out your, your different nutrients to have carbon protein meals versus fat and protein meals, I would highly recommend spreading out those uh, nutrients more, maybe just having one meal a day without carbs. If that, if performance is your goal, you don't even need that because when we have carbs in a meal, we're more likely to spike insulin, which is going to be more likely to spike growth hormone, possibly muscle protein synthesis. So for most people trying to build muscle or, or perform better, it might actually be beneficial to have carbs spread out more evenly across the day and have them in all your meals. So there's a lot of routes I could go with this question, but the main reason I wanted to bring it up on the podcast is because number one, don't split hairs if you don't need to. Number two, too much of anything is not good. Number three, the foundations matter most. Methods are many. Principles are few. Principles never change. Methods often do. It might be methods always change. Principles never do. But the point is (laughs) the foundational shit doesn't change. All right, next question is from Anonymous Coach. So I I, uh, told them I would leave their name out of it just in case their client actually happens to listen to the podcast. 
I have a client I need help with if you can. I've been working with this client for a while. He had been cutting on his own a while, and when he came on board with me, we reverse dieted him for about six months. He's at 194 to 196 pounds, meets his macros perfectly, gets seven to nine hours of sleep at night, is a pharmacist, so he's on his feet all the time, and uh, we are in his cut now, and we're about 1,900 calories. We started at 2,600, so they've done a 700-calorie drop. Did a diet break at about 2,200. I have him at higher protein, lower carbs, and super low fat. 196 protein, 204 carbs, 46 fat. He's just stuck. I feel like I'm not doing my part as a coach for his cut. I'm just not sure what I'm missing. He works out five days a week with doing CrossFit and does extra Olympic lifting twice a week. He's lost two pounds in three months. We've been cutting now. So there's a few things to take note of here. Number one, it depends. I, I, they asked me if I can help them out. My exact answer was like, to be completely honest with you, I would literally have to speak with this individual. I would have to go through all of his metric sheets. I would have to look at his questionnaire. I would have to see his progress over the last few months. I'd really have to see where he's at and see everything in order to really help. But I'm going to do the best I can. The first thing I would say is, is he... Does he have an adaptive metabolism? So if you reverse dieted him, because you didn't give me this information, but if you reverse dieted him all the way up to 2,600 calories, how many, because uh, you you said that you reverse dieted him over six months. So where did he start? Is that from 1,600 to 26? Is that from 22 to 26? Like how big of a jump was that? And what were his weight fluctuations during that time? Um, if you told me that he gained weight during the process, I would say, okay, he doesn't have a very adaptive metabolism. That's totally fine. Is his biofeedback better, right? Um, if you told me that he didn't gain any weight, I would say, oh, cool. He has an adaptive metabolism. So a couple things with that. I wouldn't have taken a conservative approach to slowly dropping down. I would have just dropped down immediately, uh, gone a little bit more aggressive because the more adaptive somebody is on the way up, meaning the easier it is for them to reverse diet, the more... Uh, the more easily they stay at the cal- the weight they're at while you bring up calories, the less likely it is that their weight is going to drop with conservative cutting because they have an adaptive metabolism. So just as you added 10 grams carbs and they didn't gain a pound, 10 grams carb didn't gain a pound, and it was like a seamless reverse diet on the way up, when you drop 10 grams of carbs, they're not going to drop a pound, right? When you drop 20 grams of carbs, they're not going to drop a pound. You got to drop 50. You got to drop 60. You have to drop a big percentage. So we kind of have the scale of like 5 to 20% of caloric reduction, meaning I'm going to slash out 5, 10, 15, 20% of your calories. I'm more likely to go above 10% with an individual who has an adaptive metabolism and give him more frequent diet breaks. So it's going to look like two to three weeks of hard dieting and then one to two weeks of maintenance. Um... But again, everybody's different. I don't know if that was the case with them. Um, if you told me that he gained weight in the process, I would then ask, how long did he diet for prior? We're going to get into this in a f- future question, but I see a lot of people who do a reverse diet and they try to go into a cut too soon. They're like, oh, I brought my calories back up. Now my metabolism's perfect. I'm going to jump right into a cut. Not how it works. Um, you have to maintain that healthy metabolism for a little bit. You know, like a lot of times what we tell people is one to two times as much time at maintenance than a deficit. How long you were in a deficit determines how long you need to be in a maintenance. Um, how aggressive you were with the cut determines that how low your body fat percentage was, um, what your overall goal, your timeline is determines that, but you need to spend at least as much time reverse dieting and at maintenance 
as you were in a deficit. So if if you were in a deficit prior for six months, you got to reverse diet and stay on maintenance for at least six months, if not a year, Um, which is what a lot of people don't want to hear, which is why working with a coach during the maintenance phase is actually pretty helpful because it allows you to have accountability. It allows you to have support. It allows you to set different goals within that maintenance phase. It allows you to set performance metrics and it allows you to cycle phases throughout that maintenance phase. So you're not just maintaining the whole time. Maybe you do have mini breaks throughout the process. Maybe you do have different testing phases where you drop into a deficit and see how your body responds. Maybe you test different strategies with different macros. Maybe you create new metabolic flexibility, meaning you're shifting between high carb and low carb and so on and so forth. That's a testing ground. Uh, but it's a good good thing to work with a coach during that maintenance phase. Um, so there's a lot of things going on with this question that makes it hard for me to determine. Now, you have his macros at 196, 204, 46. I would personally say that you know he, he does five days a week of CrossFit and does extra only lifting twice a week. My first thing for him would say, hey, if you want to practice your skills of Olympic lifting, you need to make that a part of your CrossFit sessions, meaning you start your CrossFit sessions with Olympic leaf- lifting. Keep the stress within the time frame, right? Either way, you're stressing the nervous system, you're ramping up cortisol, you are training hard. There's no reason to come back into the gym after that. Do it all there. Even if that means you spend another 30 minutes there, I would rather you spend another 30 minutes while cortisol is high, while adrenaline's high. I'd rather you do it there. I'd rather you work out for an hour and a half than an hour and do it all together rather than finishing the CrossFit workout, calming your nervous system down, getting into parasympathetic mode, dro- dropping adrenaline and cortisol down, and then coming back to the gym and ramping it all back up before you go to bed. Not a good idea. You're playing with your cortisol levels and stress levels, and that's not a smart thing to do. So I would definitely bring that into the session or just cut it out completely. Um, I personally find really good results with CrossFitters that are doing five days a week who want to lose body fat. I have them do less CrossFit and more bodybuilding. So I would take two of those CrossFit workouts and make them bodybuilding specific so you're not just constantly driving uh, intensity up every single session of the week. Rather, you're doing a couple sessions a week that is a little bit more moderate intensity, more bodybuilding focused. Um, That's probably going to help quite a bit. Um, as far as his macros, I probably would go higher protein, lower carb, higher fat. Um, if you are dropping calories down and you're lowering fat, lowering fat, lowering fat, it's not working, try bringing up fat and lowering carbs. So some kind of carb cycling would probably be smart for this individual. I might go with similar macros you have. I might bump his protein up to about 1.1 to 1.2 grams per pound just to give him more calories um, that are more thermic. So you're going to burn more, uh, more, burn more calories through digestion, the thermic effect of food with protein. Um, you're also having more than enough protein, which is going to elicit more muscle maintenance. Um, you're also going to be able to have more calories that are partition in a way that's favorable for fat loss. And what I mean by that is protein is very unlikely to store as fat. Um, kind of bro science, but the reality is that this is why a lot of bodybuilders and us people who transform physiques aesthetically use higher protein intakes. So I would probably go upwards of 220 protein. I would probably leave uh, carbs at 200 and I would probably bring fats up to 50. Those would be training days. So that's actually going to increase your calories just a little bit from where you're at right now at that 1900. Then what I would do is take the two days a week that he is not working out and I would tell him, don't work out, 
don't do Olympic lifting, don't do high intensity cardio. I want you to go on a walk both of those days outside for 30 to 40 minutes. Enjoy the sun, get some fresh air, just walk. You can do it faster in the morning or you can do it after meals. It does not matter, but I just want you moving that day, very low intensity. We are going to drop carbs quite a bit and we're going to bring fats up. So you can bring his fats upwards of like 70 to 80 grams and you can drop his carbs by half. So his carbs would literally be at 100. His carbs are only coming from a little bit of fruit and plenty veggies, no starches. His fats are coming from a mixture and they're spread out evenly across the day. So now we're doing a little bit of carb cycling. We're practicing a little bit of metabolic flexibility, which I find helps people when they are stuck in a plateau. Get the body used to using different fuels uh, to burn, to utilize as energy, so on and so forth. It also gives him a couple days to drive carbs down, which is going to help deplete him and burn some muscle glycogen, which is actually beneficial when we're in a fat loss phase. Um, And then it's an easier way to hit a deficit without dropping calories on his training days. The reality is there's no secret or special uh, formula or or just magic, I should say, to carb cycling. If your weekly caloric deficit is the same, it doesn't matter whether you cycle carbs or not. However, I do find that A, it does help improve metabolic flexibility. I don't need people becoming quote-unquote fat burners or like keto or anything like that. But if you are resistant to fat loss, your body may be struggling to literally use fat as fuel. Now, you're going to use fat as fuel doing shit like I'm doing right now, talking on a podcast, I go on a walk this morning, stuff like that. But the more you can get your body used to using fats fuel, the better, which is actually why I do like fasted cardio. Fasted cardio doesn't burn more calories. But if you do fasted cardio every day, over time, studies have shown that it may improve your metabolic flexibility. It may improve your body's ability to use fat for fuel, but you have to do it consistently. Um, the, the episode I did with Dr. Mike T. Nelson, which I'll drop in the sh- uh, show notes, was really cool. We talked about this exact thing, and studies did show that. So in an acute setting, which is what, where most studies are when we're looking at caloric expenditure, if we do fasted cardio for four weeks and we see who has better benefits, it's not going to show any difference. But if you do fasted cardio for months and months and months, you may be able to change your body's ability to burn fat, which may help with people who are fat loss resistant, who are stubborn to fat loss. Um, So all that being said, I would probably have him possibly go on walks in the morning. I would have him have the higher carbs with a little bit more protein. So I'd set his calories a little bit higher than they are right now, 220, 250 um, protein, carbs, fats. I would probably have those on the five days a week that he's doing CrossFit. I would make sure that he's not going back to the gym to do anything else. It's just one session per day on those five days a week. The other two sessions are low-intensity cardio just for recovery purposes, meditative purposes, um, and to burn some extra calories. And on those days, I would have him pretty damn low-carb, like 100 grams, 75 to 100 grams, um, just fruit and veggies. And then his fats would be between 70 and 80, key proteins the same. That would create a bigger weekly deficit for him. It would probably elicit more uh, fat loss just through the fact that he's in a bigger deficit, but also through the stress being managed better. I think he would have better recovery due to not splitting up his workouts, due to having uh, a little bit low intensity days just to promote better recovery. Um, And I think the metabolic flexibility of the carb cycling would actually help because we're increasing fats on those days. So long-winded answer uh, to the coach that asked me this question. Um, But as you guys can see, there's a million ways to skin a cat. Um, it's funny. I was having this conversation with Shannon. I was like, why is that a saying? I think I've said this on the podcast, this in the newsletter. Why is a million ways to skin a cat a saying that's disgusting? Who, who says that? Or like beat a dead horse. What does that mean? Why would you beat a dead horse? And it's funny because Shannon was like, well, you wouldn't. That's the whole point. You're not going to beat a dead horse. The whole point is that you wouldn't. And I was like, 
okay. And I started saying random shit that I wouldn't ever do. And it didn't make sense to her, but I thought it was funny. Um, but the point is, is that's a weird saying. Put a bug in your ear. Don't fucking do that. That's, <laughs> that's another crazy ass one. There's so many weird sayings. But anyway, <laughs> I'm ranting now. Uh, I love you guys for listening to this podcast. This is like my daily journal. Um, there's a million ways to go about this question. There's a million ways to do nutrition. Uh, you can carb cycle. You can avoid carb cycling. You can add a modified protein spraying fast one day. You can have high carb days so that you feel good on training days and really low carb days just fast um, and have a really big deficit on some days. You can have a lower deficit on all days. You can do any type of cardio. There's so many ways to do it, but the, the overarching theme here is simple. You need to balance your intensities to improve recovery and reduce stress while achieving a weekly caloric deficit. That's the biggest goal here. All right. Barry Vincent. I'm setting up a new program for myself, shooting for a four-day full body split. I love Zercher squats, and I'm curious if you'd make any considerations when putting them into a full body workout as they can be quite taxing on your arms. Do them before slash after so basically, do them before or after taxing upper body work like presses, chins, etc. Does it matter? Um, absolutely, it matters. So it, it, I think it depends on you have to decide what your main goal is. So I could I, again, I could spin this two different ways. I could say essentially like, okay, well, what's your priority? Well, my priority is to build my lats, and my shoulders. I want that V taper. Okay, cool. Then I want you doing zerger squats after you do presses and chins. Because presses and chins are what is going to more likely build your shoulders and your lats, and those are your, your focus. If you told me, I really want to build my legs, I really want to build up, I want to progressively overload my zercher squat and build that over time, then I would say, do them first, because you need your arms fresh so that you can stabilize more weight and you can squat heavier and progressive, progressively overload that over time. So it really doesn't matter. I think it's just, I mean, there's so many different ways to program. You have to be creative with it and you have to have kind of an order of importance that aligns well with your goals and what you specifically want to achieve. Um, I could also say that, you know, ask you, is the Zercher squat, is that your accessory or is that your compound? Meaning, do you do Zercher squats on Thursday because on Monday you have back squats? So maybe on Monday, you're doing back squats. That's your, your compound lift. You're trying to progressively overload over time. And by the time it gets to Thursday, your overhead press and your chin up are your compound lifts, but your zercher squat is your accessory work. Well, if it's your accessory and it's just there to help you build your squat on another day, then I would say focus on your press and chins. Make sure you go heavy on that. Yeah, your arms would be a little fatigued when you get to squats, but that's fine. Focus on a negative, focus on a pause, focus on tension, focus on stability, focus on form. And just worry about doing the best you can under those circumstances. There's also the merit to say like progressively overload that while you are fatigued. This is what's like – this is one of the beautiful things about CrossFit or um, one of the beautiful things about putting power movements at the end of a workout for athletes. Now – you don't have as much energy. So for most people, if we're looking at this logically from like, you know, if we're going by the textbook, that's probably not the best idea. You have, you have less energy, you're more fatigued, you're more, you're less mentally focused. And therefore you put compounds first. Usually you put power movements first. Usually, however, a UFC fighter, a NFL fighter, a CrossFitter has to be able to be explosive and powerful in the fourth quarter in the final event of the CrossFit, in the sixth round, right? Whatever it may be. So for those individuals, it, it's actually advantageous to put in some power movements while they're fatigued. So, so we can kind of spin this anyway. Um, but the thing I would say to you is, is programming is an art. 
you should have progressive overload in there on the movements that you want to get stronger with and you should have an order of importance within your program to A, improve the progressive overload of those compounds that you want to focus on and B, enhance muscle imbalances, enhance movement patterns and literally build muscle in the places you want to do so with which means that you would either A, put zercher squats first if that's your compound lift you were trying to get stronger with, or B, put it afterwards if it's not as important as the chins, the presses, the isolation work, the things that you are trying to build up. So yes, it does matter, and it doesn't matter at the same time. Same, same. Different, but same, same. Name that movie. Oh my God, I'm going to butcher this one. Cough, fist, so ping pong. Damn. That is a confusing name, man. I am sorry for butchering that. Kofis Om Pimp Ong. K-O-F-I-S-O-M-P-I-M-P-O-N-G. No idea, man. That is crazy. Uh, which is funny because I'm probably completely butchering that. Com- yeah, I'm probably just like it, – it's probably obvious and I just can't pull the letters apart to get it. Instagram can be confusing. Do you suggest the RPE scale to your beginner clients? How do you explain the RPE scale to your clients and what dictates which number you use for each exercise? Really loaded question. So I I use the RPE scale with – I think it's hard to say. I use the RPE scale with everybody that I write programs for, every single one of them, 100% of them. But there's a reason for that. I didn't always do that. The reason for that is simple. I – write training programs for a select amount of individuals because we have the elite membership site. Most people who successfully change their physique with Boom Boom Performance, we have a system. You do nutrition coaching with us. That allows us to give you support, accountability, individualized coaching. It allows us to adjust cardio, training, nutrition. Um, But you usually jump in the elite. When you jump in the elite, that is our membership site that gives you access to all my best training programs. They're updated every month. I can help you adjust them. But that's your place. The only people I write programs for are very specific individuals. Um, I have, uh, so shout out to Chad Gable, um, not his real name, but that's his stage name in the WWE. He has some rotor, rotator cuff issues. He is a very specific athlete that I want to, that wanted to work with me. So I write individualized programming for him because we have to not only work around imbalances and injuries, but also that man travels around the world for a living. So his schedule is insane. Now, and there's a few other people that are like that, injuries, uh, bodybuilders, um, so on and so forth. But the majority of people who do my training, they do it inside the elite. So the reason I'm saying this is because, A, the people I do write individualized training programs for, they're advanced individuals. So I know that they can comprehend and understand what RPE is, and I can uh, expect and trust that they're, they'll follow it um, as it's supposed to, to be followed, as it's intended for. Um, and the people in the elite, it's a group of people. So I have to put RPE because generally I want people to stay within these intensity zones. Some of them are advanced. Some of them are beginners. Some of them are intermediate. All of them are going to see it and, and those who understand how to use it. Um, and I also educate on how to use it inside the membership site. Um, they will use it as it's intended. So I use it for everybody. Um, as far as beginners, I do suggest it for m- most Actually, I don't know. It's hard to say. I didn't use it for a lot of beginners that I worked with for two reasons. Number one, I trained people in person for six years. I didn't need to tell you the RPE. I was there to make sure that you 
did the exercise with the right intensity that you used the right amount of weight that you were executing it properly. So I dictated your RPE. Um, I think there's some beginners that should not use it because I think that some beginners just need to work on the skill. I'm not even worried about if you're a complete newbie in the gym, I'm really not worried about your RPE. I'm not worried about your volume. I'm not worried about your intensity. I'm worried, worried about you learning how to do the movement patterns. We have to remember that a squat, a deadlift, a proper row, a proper press, those things, they, they require skill acquisition, which means that you have to learn the movement patterns. You need to recruit motor units to properly and fundamentally do that movement properly. Your nervous system has to mold to that movement, has to learn how to do it exceptionally well before you can load it. So for individuals that are beginners, I don't give a fuck about your RPE. Excuse my French, but my, my goal is for you to build skill on the squat and the deadlift and the, the overhead press and the chin-up, things like that. I want you to get really good at moving your joints and firing your muscles properly and effectively. Um, now, once you get to a certain point and I, I feel like you are proficient at the movement patterns, at that point, I think you sh can introduce RPE so that you can work towards an effective RPE and an effective volume. A few things on that before I, ex I, I explain the RPE. Number one there is an intensity zone that we should stay in. Number two, there is a volume threshold that we should stay within. Both of those things are described massively in the ebook that's launching in a couple weeks. September 9th, mark your calendars. I'm gonna remind you guys all the time because I'm super hyped about this. It is going to be a legendary program. It's gonna be the best program I've ever launched. It has explanations on everything. I wanna say the ebook itself is... I should pull it up, but I mean probably at least 20,000 words before you even get to the program. I mean there's there's built-in mobility, warm-up, the whole entire periodized program. It's adjustable to you. It's individualizable to you. It helps you auto-regulate the entire program so you know what intensity you should be doing what in depending on what day of the week it is. Um, and those things change week to week because everybody's stress levels change and this factors that in and allows you to change things based on your stress. It's really, really cool. But before that, I have a section on volume, a section on frequency, a section on intensity, a section on execution, a section on my philosophy, on RPE, like literally everything that you need to know about training is described this. It's the most educational program I've ever written. Super, super excited about this. Now, I say that because if you are curious about the things I'm talking about right now, make sure you stay on the lookout. Make sure you grab that. Um, how do I explain the RPE scale to my clients and what dictates the number I use for each exercise? So the way I explain it to clients is pretty simple. Gun to your head on a scale of 1 to 10, how difficult this is. 10 being that you fail. You are at your maximum capacity and you cannot do any more. 9 being that gun to your head, you can do one more rep. Eight being that gun to your head, you can do two more reps. Seven being you can do three, six, four. Like it's literally that simple. Um, so usually your warm up is like a, a four to five. You can easily do way more. Maybe even like a three. You can easily do way more. The, the purpose isn't to create fatigue. The purpose is to warm up and activate and just get your body moving, get your body functioning. Um, a RPE of eight is more like where we should be at for the most of our exercise. And that's why, like to answer your question of like what dictates the number I use, what dictates the number I use is what we did before, what we did yesterday, and what your stress levels are like that week, which is why this auto-regulated program is going to be so good because if your stress is higher, if your recovery is lower, then your RPE needs to drop, right? You need to take care of your body, your nervous system, your joints. Therefore, if you're banged up, don't have an RPE of eight to nine. 
if you are fresh and you are ready to go, I think almost everything should stay in the RPE of 8 to 9. If we look at all the literature on intensity, frequency, volume, uh, muscle hypertrophy, things like that, most of it will lead to the conclusion that staying in the 80 to 90% of your max effort range is likely the most beneficial for muscle growth. What that means is you always have one or two in the tank. You never really go to failure because if you go to failure, yes, you might get more muscle activation, uh, more muscle growth acutely, meaning that session, but your recovery on a muscular joint and nervous system level is actually so much lower and so much more fatigued that you're unable to train that muscle again soon which means your frequency drops, which means that your weekly and monthly volume lowers. So if we look at things for past the extent of one single session, going to failure is just not really that smart at all. Um, the exception here is things like lateral raises. Um, it's such a low fatigue exercise on a neural basis and a load intensity basis that it, it's pretty easy to recover from. But bigger movement patterns, this applies. But because of that, I, I really do think it's best to keep your RPE at eight to nine on everything if you're fresh and keep it at like a six to seven on everything if you are really banged up and you need to deload a little bit. And that's like gun to your head. Again, so six to seven means gun to your head. You could do three to four more reps, um, which still technically could be difficult. If you do, you know, if you have three reps in the tank, your last rep should still be difficult. You should still be feeling your muscles work. You should still be tired. The load should still feel heavy. You should still be breathing hard. Eight to nine is like really pushing. It's challenging. That's why I say gun to your head. I don't mean to take things and make it sound like hardcore, like hardcore bro gonna burn out on your set. But the reality is, is that's the best way to describe it because gun to your head, one to two more reps, you are pushing it. But you need to elicit that amount of effort inside your training to show muscle growth. It's been documented in studies. So I often, uh, pretty much across the board, if you're fresh, eight to nine RPE, if you are banged up and need to deload, whether you're deloading the entire week or you're just deloading that set or that day because you just didn't sleep well, you had high stress, you didn't get good food, whatever it may be, I would probably say six to seven. Jacob underscore Carver underscore nutrition. I just finished your functional muscle program and had great results. Not part of the question, but I had to throw that in there. Unfortunately... Over the next year, I am going to be limited on equipment and won't have gym access. I have power blocks, dumbbells, uh, so those are the adjustable ones that usually go up to like 50 or 60 pounds, a bench, some bands, and a few kettlebells. How would you structure my program? I am writing an article right now. Um, if it is out by now, I will put it in the show notes. If it is not, then you'll have to wait, but stay tuned. Um, called the uh, the building the most of how to build the most effective full body program. I think that's what it's called. It's already 4,000 words and I'm not even, I'm like three quarters of the way done. So it's like super in depth. Um, but I would definitely go full body. I love full body programs. And I think in your scenario, anytime you have like very limited equipment, you don't have gym access. I always almost, almost always go with a full body routine because I think it's better to push most of your exercises closer to failure, given that your load is going to be pretty low. You have dumbbells that only go up to 50. You have a bench, you have bands and you have a few kettlebells, which means that you don't have a ton of load. You don't have a barbell. You don't have plates and tons of pounds that you can throw on movements, which means that your overall systemic fatigue is probably going to be lower than average compared to you going to a gym. Since that is the case, I would almost always recommend doing a full body routine. Yes, it's going to be more fatiguing per session, but I think overall that's a smarter approach so you can bring yourself closer to that RPE I was just talking about in the last question. Um, so I'd go with the full body routine. 
I would follow the principles of hitting each movement pattern every day. Push, pull, hip hinge, knee flexion, something for your core. Usually something for your core means uh, rotation or uh, spinal flexion. So spinal rotation, spinal flexion, or anti-extension flexion, anti-rotation, which would be like, so a rotation would be like a Russian twist, right? You are rotating, but you're controlling that lumbar rotation. An anti-rotation would be like a pull-off press. The cable is trying to get you to rotate, but you are not allowing it to let you rotate. Um, spinal flexion would be simple, crunch, sit up. Um, spinal anti-extension flexion would be something like a long lever plank or an ab wheel, um, but something for your core basically is the whole concept here. Push would be anything pushing or pressing. Uh, pull would be anything pulling or rowing. Hip hinge would be anything that creates a hip hinge. And then knee flexion would be anything that's knee dominant, like a squat. So when you do this, you're going to hit every muscle group. And the cool thing about this is, is if you do push, pull, hip, knee, core, five rounds, then throw a couple isolation exercises, you get enough volume, you get enough intensity, you're going to burn a lot of calories because you're hitting every movement pattern, you're hitting every major muscle group, and you finish the week without really leaving anything out. If you try to do an upper lower program, you're going to leave things out. You're, you're possibly not going to get all your sessions in for the week, which means that you might skip upper body day one week. It's just hard. Doing like the most flexible type of program, especially when you don't have equipment or gym access, I believe is a full body plan. And it's just following the push, pull, hip, knee, core. So if you did that, you could do a bench press. So a dumbbell bench press, a dumbbell RDL, um, a dumbbell row or a band row. Um, and then a kettlebell goblet or offset racked or double racked split squat, and then finish up with some crunches, a plank, uh, hanging knee raises, uh, Russian twist, something like that. I've just done a press. I've just done a pull. I've just done a hip hinge. I've just done knee dominant movement and I've done something for my core. Now I've hit my abs. I've hit my chest. Technically I've hit my shoulders and triceps as well as indirect muscles in that I've hit my lats and or traps and or rear delts and or rhomboids, depending on which way I angle my elbows during that pull. I've hit my glutes and hamstrings with the RDL. And then I've hit my quads and probably some glutes and a little bit of calves during the split squat. Lastly, I hit my abs. So I've done everything. The next day, what do you do? You do an overhead press instead of a bench press. You do a, uh, let's say, a pullover instead of a one-arm row. So now I'm, it's a lat-dominant row instead of maybe a trap and rhomboid dominant. Um, or maybe I do a posterior fly. I would even add like on the push-pull-hip-knee core, you do push-pull-pull-hip-knee core. So you do twice as many pulls. Uh, but adding to the list, you do the lat pullover. Then maybe you do a hip thrust or glute bridge. So it's another hip hinge, but it's more dominant for your glutes instead of hamstrings. Um, then you do a goblet squat instead of a split squat, or you do a walking lunge or a step up, any knee dominant movement. And then maybe you do a carry, which is going to be lateral anti-rotation. Um, or you can do, again, a hollow hold or uh, any type of flexion, anti-extension, anti-rotation, rotation drill. Uh, but again, we do everything. So every day you just have this list of push, pull, hip, knee, core. You basically change the patterns in the exercise selection day to day, but you're always hitting the same movement patterns and you're always hitting every muscle group in the body. Easiest way to do it, keeps it stress free, keeps it very flexible, and it keeps you working towards your goals. Christiana Funmi, what advice do you give someone who wants to lose weight but not track macros? So... I give the advice of, it, it depends where they're at in their journey because my advice would be one of two things. If it's a new person to the whole thing, um, I would probably say my advice is actually to go like 80, like hybrid paleo. Like in what I mean by hybrid paleo is not full blown paleo because I still think, you know, gluten-free oatmeal, I, organic gluten-free oatmeal is a whole food to me. White rice is a whole, 
food to me. Um, Dave's Killer Bread is a whole food to me. But what we're doing is we're strictly focusing on whole foods. If they have never done anything, they're brand new to all this, I'm just focusing on getting enough protein. I'm focusing on getting micronutrient-dense foods, quote-unquote whole foods, things like that. That alone is going to create a deficit, and we're going to be good. That's all I care about at this point, right? Um, If it is somebody who has been at it for a while, I would probably have the opposite of advice. I'd say, hey, like I know you don't want to track macros, but it's time to track macros. Because the reality is this. If somebody has been doing the habits, they've been eating whole foods, they're training, they're doing all the things that would intuitively put you into a deficit, but they're at a major plateau, something is in the way of them seeing success, and it's within the fine lines. We need data to show us what that is. Are they getting too little protein? Are they get not getting? Are they do they have a nutrient deficiency? Are they not fueling themselves with enough carbs? Is their nutrient timing off? Um, do their do their macros fluctuate too much? Is it like high fat one day, high protein one day, high carb one day? Are their calories up and down constantly? Is their body unable to utilize the amount of fuel that they're taking in? So like, there's so many different things, but the reality is if I don't have data, if I don't have numbers, if I don't have macros, it's very hard for me to predict exactly what's going on. With somebody brand new to the whole thing, I can tell you exactly what it is. They're eating junk food and it's putting them in a surplus. So if we eat clean food, quote unquote, it's going to put them in a deficit. Super, super simple. They're going to feel way better because they get better nutrients. They're just going to be more motivated. It's going to work for quite a while. But at some point, they get to a plateau and we're going to have to turn to macros. So my answer to this is simple. Like the advice I give to somebody is either A, hey, let's change simple habits that we know are sustainable until we get to your goal. Or B, we've already built all the habits. You're stuck. You're at a plateau. We've been trying to work through this plateau for a few weeks now without macros, but it's coming to the point where we just need to implement macros for a little while to teach you a little bit more about your body and what it needs in order to reach the ultimate goal. Rhiannon Healy, is it possible to diet and see results while in treatment for gut issues, i.e. parasites, SIBO, leaky gut, etc., or should you wait until your treatment is finished? Asking this because treatments can take anywhere from six months to three years, depending on the severity. I've been in treatment for 12 months and I've started dieting for a show in March 6th, uh, in March, six weeks ago, sorry, dieting for a show in March, six weeks ago, but haven't had any weight changes, only body recon. Manage. I don't know why I keep saying manage. I think when I copy these questions from... Sorry, every time at the end of a question it says manage and I almost read it. I just did read it. <laughs> so um, I'm talking out loud. Is it possible? Yes. Um, I don't know if I would do it. Um, in fact, I may have answered this question before. I think this might actually be an old question. Uh, nonetheless, I'm going to answer it again because if somebody listened and didn't hear it the first time, they're going get, to get the answer. Um, if I never answered it, I want to make sure it gets answered. Um, first, I would say yes, is it possible? I think I, the reality is, is anytime anything is going on, weight loss is usually still possible in some way, shape, or form. But a lot of times, it's very, very difficult. It takes managing so much other stressors in your life. I think that your caloric deficit is not going to be as accurate because you have a gut issue. Anytime there is a massive amount of stress, hormonal stress, or gut-related stress in general. I think your caloric deficit is masked. And what I mean by that is what it takes for you to be in a deficit is different than what you would see in a calculator or on paper. Therefore, I think that a caloric deficit, quote unquote, a normal one, would be less effective for somebody in your situation. I also think that dieting for a show is extremely stressful, especially in the last six months of dieting for a show. So the fact that you are going into that while you have so much stress in your body as is, is probably not the best idea, to be honest. Um, I don't want to discourage you. Uh, I want to push you to do whatever you it is, it is you want to achieve, but 
my first answer if somebody came to me in your situation and said, can I diet for show is I would say, hey, can we wait? Can we fix this gut problem first? Um, so yeah, I think it's possible. Um, I just think that it, it really depends, A, on the severity. Um, B, it's probably going to be harder. And C, you probably should wait until treatment is finished simply because if you can get rid of the issue that's holding you back with your gut and in your really your health in general, I think the prep for a show is going to be 10 times easier. Um, so my advice is always to wait. I think that a lot of people strive for fat loss, strive for physique competition, stuff like that when they have so much stress in their life already. And it's just not the best way to go about it. I would much rather see people manage their stress, manage their lifestyle, manage their health first, and then go for the comp. And this is kind of where that periodization plan comes in play. Spend time managing health and getting healthier, fixing your hormones, getting sleep, managing stress. Once you accomplish that, then go into a cut. I think it's the best way to periodize it. Kai underscore she. How do you balance running a business and a family? This comes from my story. These next three come from my story Q&A that I did this week. Um, And I think it's a really good question because I think a lot of people – really just bullshit around this answer and they talk about balance and and I will keep it real um, as somebody who is an entrepreneur, somebody who does have an obsessive personality. um, uh, I don't like admitting that, (laughs) but I also think it's why the business is successful too, because I'm obsessed with stuff. I, I really, really care about helping people grow, about building the business, about getting out more content, about helping others transform that obsessive nature actually helps the business grow because I love what I do so much. So it's a healthy obsession. However, when you add a family into the mix, it can be really tough to balance that. And to say that I have quote unquote balance, I think would be a lie because I think balance implies that there is a time distribution that is evenly spread across the things in your life, which would mean that I prioritize on a time basis, my body, my business, and my family, the same equal amount, and myself personally, my spirituality, my emotional well-being, so on and so forth. But that's that's not true. Um, in fact, the order from a time scale actually goes like this. Business takes the most of my time. Family takes the second most of my time. My body physically takes the third most of my time. And then last and definitely least comes personal development, emotional well-being, so on and so forth. However, I will say that me focusing on building my business, focusing on working with all the people inside my business, um, me spending time with my family, me working on my body, all those things contribute to my mind, my emotional well-being, so on and so forth. So I can put less time into that category because I don't need to, because indirectly I'm improving it with all these other aspects of my life, which is why I think balance is bullshit. From a time scale, you'll never have balance, especially not if you want to be successful in anything. It takes time and effort, which means if I want my business to grow and reach people around the world and help people around the world and do what it needs to do and give the people who work for me a platform where they can have careers, I have to spend the majority of my life, literally the majority of the time spent on this earth, investing into my business. There's no other choice. And I think there's a lot of fake ass entrepreneurs out there that will try to sell this dream of like, you can kick your feet up on the beach and, and you know, be online business owner and it's so easy and blah, blah. It's not, it's a grind. In fact, it's harder. Working for somebody is 10 times easier. When I worked for somebody, I walked into a building, they gave me clients, I got to train, I had no risk. It was a blast. Now, granted, I thrive on risk and creation, so this is what I need to do. Is I, I fucking love the entrepreneur side of my business. However, the reality is, is I have to create everything. Everything is on me. 
and the people who work for me, I supply them. That's a, that's a scary thing for a lot of people. I thrive on it. I love it. I, fu- I absolutely, I, I'm actually getting really hyped up talking about this. I absolutely love it. But what I'm trying to get at is that creates zero, it, it creates less balance from a time scale. So the reason I'm talking about this is because it's far less about balancing your time and it's far more about devoting your energy and your present being into each aspect of your life. I'm going to repeat that. It is way less about balancing time. It's way less about balance overall. It's much more about devoting your energy, investing effort in your present being into each avenue of your life. So when I'm working, I am fucking working. Anybody can ask Shannon. I put my phone on airplane mode, do not disturb. I put my phone in my desk. You won't hear from me. If I'm working, I am working. I am invested in my content. I don't open emails till a certain time. If I'm emailing, I'm only emailing. It's just, it's, it's just straight work, right? When I am off, granted, this is more difficult than anything else. When I'm off, I have to turn off social media. I have to stop. I can't stop thinking about business. I'd be lying if I said I did. I'm always thinking about business. I always have ideas pop in my head. I'll pull out my phone, write notes, things like that. But social media, content creation, email, stuff like that, it's done. I am no longer doing that. I am with my family. Something that I said on Instagram was it was super powerful and it, and it solidifies this idea. My daughter will never, not only know until she's old enough, I guess, but she really won't give a shit how many followers I have, how much I bench press, how much money I make, anything like that. What she will remember is when I chase her around the house and she laughs and screams and thinks I'm like a monster. She will remember when I play hide and seek with her. She will remember when I take her on a walk. She will remember when I play dollies with her and shit like that. She'll remember when I made her smile and laugh, period. When she's old enough, she will remember the impact I had on people's lives. But it has nothing to do with money, followers, or PRs in the gym. So again, it's me being present with her. So I think the, the, uh, the concept of what I'm trying to get at is how do I balance running a business and a family? It's, it's because I'm, I'm ultra focused on whatever it is that I'm doing at the time. When I'm training, I am training. I, every rep counts. I set a timer for my rest periods. If I am do anything in between, like check Instagram or anything, the timer goes off, I put it down. I am on point. So like, I think that the secret to having balance is not really worrying about balance. It's actually understanding that there is no balance inside of being a successful business owner. It's about understanding how to be present with what you're doing and invest your full devotion uh, of your well-being, of your emotional uh, self into whatever it is that you're working on at the time. Highly recommend the book, Deep Work. I've been listening to the audio book. It, just, it, it really just capitalizes on everything I'm saying. I got that recommendation from Austin Current. So, so good. Um, and he talks about this. And, and people actually have more fulfillment. People live longer. People have more happiness. People are more successful. And studies show this if they learn how to go into deep work. And deep work does not just mean shutting everything off and working. It means shutting everything off and being present. So if you're shutting everything off to be present in your gym session, that's what it is. You'll be successful in the gym. If you're shutting everything off to be present with your daughter, you will be the greatest dad possible. That's what deep work means. And I think that's the philosophy that creates not balance, but just a successful business and managing a good family. The other thing I will add to this real quick, because I can't not say this, is that you need a Shannon. She doesn't listen to the podcast. She hates listening to my content because she thinks it's weird to hear my voice (laughs) unless I'm talking to her, so I know she won't hear this. So I'm not doing this for her. But it's very important to find somebody like Shannon is to me. 
you know, when we had my daughter Blakely, we had to make a decision. I said, you know, like you're working, uh, you work as a project manager at a company, a very large company. You're, you know, you're growing in the company and I, I have full faith that you'll grow. You have full faith to grow. She was a hustler when I met her independent as hell. She had her own shit. She did her own stuff. She worked hard. She made money. She was like, she was her own thing. I was in a position where I was starting an online business and I was working for somebody else. And I told her like, I want to quit the job that gives me security and paycheck. And I want to go all in on this online business. That's not really making any money right now, but I, I really think it can. And she had to look me in the eye and say, I trust you. I will quit my job to raise Blakely as a stay-at-home mother, which she didn't want to do at first until that cute baby popped out and she was like, I'm all in. (laughs) But she had to trust me. She had to have faith that I would make that work. And she had to say, like, you know what? I'm going to support that. I'm going to have faith in that. I am going to let go of my career. Um, I'm going to be a full-time mom like like you think and that you want because I want to be a mom. I don't want her to go to daycare. and, And I want you to have the freedom to build your dream because I believe in you too. She literally had to look me in the eyes and say that. And I don't know if she fully believed that it was possible at first, but she believed enough to to give me some room to try. And I made that shit happen because I had way more purpose than I ever had in my life. I quit the gym job. I went all in on my online business and I grew it. And I did that for them. So my point with this is I couldn't run a successful business if I didn't have somebody like that behind me. And that goes in many different aspects. I have a very, very helpful nutrition coach. And I'm not, like, he is a, a good friend of mine now. Like, I'll be with him for a long time. In fact, we're going to collaborate on some stuff. We're going to build stuff together. He, I've known him for years. He's coaching me. I pay him every month. It gives me accountability. That helps me be successful. I have support behind me physically. I have a mentor that helps me talk about business, marketing, strategies, training, nutrition, family, life, everything. I have a mentor that supports me. I have somebody behind me. And then I have a, an amazing wife that supports every move I make and that is with me every step of the way. I have support. And the biggest one being my wife. So the other caveat to this is how do I balance running a business and a family? I have Shannon. And I think everybody should have a Shannon. And if you don't have a spouse that does that or you are single, like there's nothing wrong with that. But you should have a coach. You should have a mentor. You should have a trainer. You should have something. You always should have something. Nobody strives well together. It's a reason why wolves run in packs, period. All right, next question. Joseph Hawthorne, Joseph Hawthorne from Instagram, uh, another business question. What's the five-year goal? Where do you see yourself in Boom Boom Formats? So I think I have an interesting take on this question because a lot of people will say, you know, there's like this kind of trend in the industry where people become trainers or coaches, then they become educators, and then they become business coaches. And I think that's cool if that's what you want to do. Like I know a couple of people that went that route and I'm super supportive of it because I can look them in the eye and they can look me in the eye and they're like, this is what I was built to do. Being a trainer, and this is how like my, my first mentor, Steve Krebs was, being a trainer, being a gym owner wasn't his thing, but it's what got him to his thing. His thing is being a business coach for male entrepreneurs who want to have successful relationships. I recommend him all day. He taught me so much. He wasn't built to be a trainer. So the fact that he went that route, I don't have any spoiled or sour taste in my mouth from that. I think that's smart. Now, I think to think that you have to go that route is off. I don't think that's the purpose behind it. And the reason I'm saying this is because where I see myself in Boom Performance in five years is right where we're at right now. I don't see us doing anything different. I see us doing it better. I see us doing it with more people. And I see us making bigger impacts in the industry. 
which means that the website is going to be better. And stay tuned for what I have in store. Whew. The last quarter of 2019 is going to be insane, not only for my business, but for you guys, both free and paid. So clients working with us and the people that just follow us for content and education, it's going to be fucking insane. I'm so excited. Anyway, website's going to be better. Blog's going to be better. This podcast's going to be better. The videos are going to be better. The Instagram's going to be better. The eBooks are going to be better. It's all going to be more frequently coming out. I'm going to be speaking more, um, not from a business standpoint, but from a nutrition standpoint, a training standpoint. I want to educate individuals, both clients and coaches alike on how to understand training and nutrition much better. I want them to know the science in an applicable manner. And that means me not going into business coaching. Like I would be lying if I said I don't do some of that because I do consult. I consult some coaches and some business owners. Um, I mentor them on business, life, marketing, stuff like that. However, I keep it very limited and exclusive because that's not my thing. My thing is training and nutrition. I, I am here to help people understand the science behind training and nutrition in an applicable way so they can have sustainable results for the rest of their lives. The way I'm going to continue doing that is by the five-year mark from now. It's not by doing anything different than I'm doing now. It's by doing more and more and more and more of it, period. So it'll be better. It'll be reaching more people, and it'll be a higher quality. It'll be more frequent. So we'll be doing more videos, more Instagram, more podcasts, more eBooks, more blogs, more membership site work. So there's a lot of education that goes in there, more training programs, more speaking, more workshops, more webinars, things like that. I think a lot of people think that their business needs to evolve and do so many different things. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like do the thing like you. I know what we are really good at. We are good at educating people on the science of training and nutrition in an applicable way, period. So for me to do something different than that is just asinine. It's insane. For me to do more of it only allows me to be better at it. That's how I create legacy. That's how I create influence and impact in the industry. That's how I create more influence and impact on people around the world who are looking to achieve better results with their body physically and mentally. That's what my mission is. That's what the five-year plan is. Um, it's, it's to just build my team, not from a, growth, like a, a person standpoint. I don't have a desire for having 20 coaches. I have a desire for having a, the best coaches to work with people. Granted, we will get more coaches as times go because – at the end of the day, if you serve more people, which is my goal, I want to help people around the world and I want to create careers for other coaches, we have to grow. But that's not like I, I look at things much, much differently than a lot of people. A lot of people think growth, 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 because they believe that leads to dollar signs. I'm looking at it from an impact standpoint. If I can help one person completely change their life, that's more important to me and that takes more time. It takes more investment in each individual, which means less growth from a team perspective, a financial perspective. It means more growth from an impact perspective, a quality perspective. That's my goal. So in five years, I see us doing bigger, better things on a larger scale with more people around the world from a physical training and nutrition standpoint. I see us educating more coaches. I see us educating more clients. I see us writing more blogs, more eBooks, filming more videos at a higher quality, recording more podcasts with better guests, bigger areas, doing more seminars, traveling, things like that. But I see boom, boom performance in five years, basically being boom, boom performance on steroids. So I hope that answers the question. Before I let you go, I just wanna say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. 
please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.